Hey, welcome, welcome. Um, in our passage today, we're jumping back into this prayer that Jesus prays before, literally, hours before he goes to the cross. This is his last real moment with the disciples before we see the picture of the Garden of Gethsemane and the struggle there, and then the betrayal, the arrest, and then ultimately uh, the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. And so this is the last thing that John highlights before all those events begin to unfold. And this prayer is very symbolic because it represents Jesus and the fulfillment of so many different things. I mean, there's just literally, uh, if we took years to study just this, this one chapter, um, you would find something new every time you come into it, just different things that you could jump off to to relate back to the Old Testament or relate to something that Paul taught or relate to something in the other gospels. There's just so, it's so rich and it speaks a lot to the cohesiveness of Jesus' ministry, both his earthly ministry of what he did and then the spiritual reason, the eternal reason of why he came to do those things with all these things coming uh, to an apex, if you will. And so as he prays this prayer, uh, some of the symbolism we've, we've highlighted, uh, there's three sections to it. The first section is verses 1 through 5 where Jesus prays for himself. And if you remember, there's only one request there, and it is glorify me so that I may glorify you. Okay, so that, that's the only request that he makes for himself. Verses 6 through 19 is where Jesus prays for his disciples. And this is what we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks. So last week we looked at the first part of that. And this week we're going to look at the last part of that. And ultimately that's where he's focused in on those 11 that are left. You know, Judas has already gone away at this time. And he talks about uh, the fact that they were the fathers before he even had them. And he's kept them this entire time. And then he prays this prayer for them, of this, the prayer of unity and this prayer of protection for them. And then in our verses today, it goes beyond that and kind of gives them a purpose of what they're called to do. And there's this picture of mentoring and even mimicking what we've seen. Just as Jesus said, I do what I see the Father doing, he calls us to do what we've seen him doing. And so there's a continuation of that. Verses 20 through 26, which we'll look at next week, um, we see where Jesus prays that the good news what he's going to fulfill through the cross, burial, and resurrection will go out. And he prays specifically for those who are going to come to believe. Um, seemingly, from the witness of those first 11 who he prays in this one, that they would be sent out into the world um, to be the lights and the darkness and to be the representation of the goodness amongst all the evil. Okay, so all of this kind of plays together. Now, uh, we talked uh, last time I was here, uh, I kind of painted a picture for the Day of Atonement. There's so many fulfillments of, of feasts and Old Testament passages, but the Day of Atonement was called the priestly prayer. Jesus has three sections to it. The three sections follow exactly what the priest would do on the Day of Atonement when he offered a, a sacrifice uh, taking blood into the Holy of Holies and speaking the holy name of God. Well, a lot of people are familiar with that action, but they don't realize that it happened three times. The priest would go into the Holy of Holies three times on the Day of Atonement. The first time was to offer a sacrifice on behalf of himself. The second time, it was to offer a sacrifice for the consecration of the priest. And the third time was the one we're familiar with, where he offers a sacrifice for the entire nation. Jesus follows almost that same exact pattern here with 
him offering a prayer for himself first, then for his disciples or the priesthood, if you will, and then for all of those who would come to know later on for that. So we see that exact picture. Um, but there's also another theme behind this, and that's the theme of Passover, and we'll get into that in a moment. We got to remember that this is Passover week, that the Passover lambs have been chosen. The Passover lambs are going to be slaughtered here not long from this moment when they will celebrate Passover and they will eat the roasted lamb along with the, the bitter herbs and all the things that are a part of a Passover celebration. So you got to think that figuratively that Passover uh, figures strongly into what John is portraying here. And any Jewish person reading this would understand the Passover connections behind this prayer. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today as well. But today, our focus, as far as the text goes, is the second part of that second section going through verse 19. Last week in 6 through 12, we saw again that prayer for protection, that prayer for unity. So keep that in the back of your mind as we jump in to our passage for today. Now today, we're going to begin in verse um, 13 because verse 13 um, really kind of sets the tone for where this is going in the rest of this text. Look at verse 13. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So again, this is Jesus talking to the Father. This is a prayer. So when he says, I'm coming to you, it's him coming to the Father. And these things I speak in the world, where Jesus is in the world, why is he there? The Father sent him into the world. Uh, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Okay? So again, that, that idea of a fulfilling joy is not just satisfying. It's this picture of overflowing. It's this picture of so much you can't contain it all, that you can't pack it all in, that there's more joy than you can handle. That's that idea of that fulfilled joy. Now notice the correlation there. I'm coming to you. These things I speak into the world. What do we speak? We speak words. Remember how John starts his gospel, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. When it talks about word, you can't deny in the gospel of John that there's a relationship to Jesus. Now, when we say that Jesus is the word, what we're saying is all of the Old Testament, which we think of as the word of God, um, points to him. He's the fulfillment of all those things. In other words, when it talks about the character of God, it's talking about the character of Jesus. When it talks about the suffering servant, it's talking about how Jesus as the Messiah was going to come and suffer and die. When it talks about a redeemer, it's talking about Jesus. So all those different pictures we have through those Old Testament books, they're all reflections of Jesus and foreshadowings of Jesus so that when he came, people could see who he was for the fact that he was the one that God promised. Now, again, this goes to the idea of glorification that Jesus prays for in the first part of this passage. Glorification, we're going to talk about this a little later on too. Glorification and revelation go hand in hand. So when Jesus prays for him to be glorified, it's not the way we think of glorification. Um, we think of glorification as accolades, like... Um, hey, that's a great job. That's giving glory to someone. Oh, man, you're awesome. You're this, you're that. You're the best this, you're the greatest that. And so we kind of play that over into understanding glory of God. They're like, well, I will glory in God. I will glorify the Lord. We think of that as, well, I will worship him. I will acknowledge him. I will tell him how great he is. But that actually has nothing to do with glory um, glory is revelation. So, I mean, if you're saying it in the sense of you have revealed to me that you're the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that's glory. That's revelation. You understand who he is. So when Jesus says, glorify me, 
What he's saying is, in the cross, demonstrate that I am the suffering servant who has come to die for the world. Let me be revealed in the suffering of the cross. So that, in my suffering of the cross, I can glorify you or reveal you. That you are the loving father who sent his son to die on behalf of humanity so that humanity could be saved. So revelation and glory go hand in hand. So when Jesus is asking for this glory, it's a picture of that revelation. Now again, as he begins this passage, he talks about this idea of peace and joy that we see. A joy, that fullness of joy. That's the joy of Jesus. It's amazing too when you begin to look at the gospel of John... I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating now because of the emphasis that whenever um, you see Jesus getting closer and closer to the cross, <clears throat> the more and more joy begins to factor into his vocabulary. He talks more and more about joy the closer and closer he gets to the cross, which you would think would be the opposite. Like There's nothing joyous about dying. There's nothing joyous about the cross and the suffering that it brings. But for Jesus... The closer he got to it, the more he talked about joy. And it's amazing because <clears throat> even the writer of Hebrews would point out that uh, in chapter 12, a very famous passage that many of you probably have memorized, says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So <clears throat> even there, when we see Jesus going to the cross, the writer of Hebrews even says that there was this, this joy that was set before him. So there is this fullness of joy, this joy that can only be found in a relationship with God, this joy that you'll never find in the world. Uh, John 14, verse 27, listen to what Jesus reminds them of back there. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So the kind of joy and the kind of peace that Jesus offers is this joy and peace that's an experiential joy, an experiential peace, not circumstantial. In other words, the joy and the peace isn't dependent on what kind of circumstances you're in. It's dependent on how strong your relationship is with God. That's what brings joy and peace into no matter what you find yourself. That's how Jesus can find joy with the cross right before him. Even though it was shameful and scornful, even in that, he endured it. Why? Because there was a joy set before him. There's a joy that can come into any situation, any circumstance, no matter how dark, no matter how dire, if we keep our eyes focused on our relationship with God. That's living for a joy that is experiential. It's experienced in a relationship, not circumstantial, not based on what's happening around us. That's where we get the word happiness from. I am happy because what's happening around me is good. I am not happy because things are <clears throat> that are happening around me are not favorable to me. Therefore, I'm not happy. Happiness is always based on circumstances. Joy is not it's not, it's not circumstantial. It is based in our relationship with God. So as we continue to think about how John creates these themes throughout the gospel, we begin to see towards the end this, this repetition that keeps coming back at us. Also think about John 15, verse 11. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be, what's the word? So again, we see that same thing. Fulfilled, here's the word, full. So this idea, again, of this overflowing, full 
to overcapacity, okay? Can't contain it all. It's too much. That joy. Now, again, look at how he words that. These things I've spoken to you. What is this spoken? That's words that we use to speak to each other. So there's a spoken word. So these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. So somehow Jesus's words that he spoke are the key to receiving the joy to the point that it's overflowing. Okay. And he wants that joy to be overflowing. He he spoke these words with intentionality so that your joy may be full. So I want to make sure that you don't miss the emphasis that we see in this transition because it's very powerful. Jesus has just prayed that the Father would keep his disciples united. And he says, and I have kept them all except for Judas, who was the one who was the betrayer from the beginning. But notice that the protection and the unity that he prayed and he highlighted really has nothing to do with why. So in other words, going forward, our idea of success isn't based on, well, we started with 15 and we still got 15. No, the idea was there's something beyond that, okay? So think about this. It doesn't have anything to do with really the statistics of of what's going on. It has more to do with the idea that there's this keeping And the keeping is directly related to this experience of immense joy. I have kept them, and in the keeping, they have experienced this immense joy, okay? There's a connection there for us as well, because we continue to follow that same pattern. How do we experience joy in this life? We experience it by keeping, okay? Keeping is the key word there. Now, I'll show you in just a minute why that's important. So let's continue on verses 14 and 15 of chapter 17. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Okay. So again, I have given them your, what's it say there in verse 14? I have given them your Word. Okay, what do we always have to think of when we're in the Gospel of John and he brings up word? Jesus is the word. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So in other words, their identification with Jesus, their keeping the word of Jesus, calls them out of the world. So the word is what distinguishes them and separates them. And so the world has angst against them because of that. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Okay, that's important too. But he does want them to, he doesn't want the Father to keep them, to keep them from the evil one. So again, the word, Jesus is the word, and that factors into how we understand this passage. Remember that we are often referred to as the people of Christ, or oftentimes we are called the people of the word because the word becomes our standard of truth our standard of action, our standard of the way we live out morality in our lives. Now, oftentimes I would say, though, that when we look at the church, especially even in our modern day, that oftentimes we look more like people of the world than we do people of the word. Now, the world is based on what? Circumstances, about what's happening around them. And so a lot of times what we do is we are trying our best to get good circumstances. We want a healthy 
bank account. We want a great job. We want a great family with kids that never make mistakes and a marriage that doesn't have any issues. And, you know, that's the kind of thing we strive for. And, and it's based on this idea that there's one eternity, okay? There's one thing to live for. It's either eternity or this is eternity. In other words, this is all you got. And so if you buy into the fact that this world is it, then you're going to put everything you have into what you experience in this world. But if you believe that there really is an eternity, if you believe what Scripture says and what Jesus has taught and spoken to us, and you begin to embrace that and hold on to that or keep that, then all of a sudden what you live for begins to change. You begin to live by the economy of God and not the economy of the world. You begin to live for things that are more eternal than they are temporal. Things that are not about your satisfaction and your pleasure, but things that are about the kingdom of God and the gospel of God going forth. Because we all know this life is short and eternity is forever. So we embrace the teachings of Jesus where he says, lay up your treasures in heaven. Don't live for the things of this world. This life is brief. brief. It's like a breath of air. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Don't store up your treasures here. All these warnings of Scripture keep reminding us this is temporal and eternity is what we should live for. But yet, as we look around, even within the church, we oftentimes find people who are still living for this life, who are still living for this world as if this is the end. And they even qualify God based on their circumstances. God is good because my life is good. God is not good because this happened to me or that happened to me. So God must not be love. God, if this is a brief moment, if this is just a wisp of air, then how can you relate God's character to something that happens in a moment? And so again, when we begin to hold on or to keep what Jesus has taught us, it begins to change the way we think about our life here. Also, I believe that verse 15 contains a whole lot of Passover language, which I'll get to a little bit later on. But one thing I do want to highlight, if you remember, we've taught a lot at Mars Hill about the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word that uh, is here in English. Okay? And the reason they call it the Shema is the first word of the mantra of the Jewish people, which they would always get together. They always uh, say this in unison very loudly. Every time they got together at synagogue, they would begin their day with it, oftentimes end their day with it. And it's hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Okay? So that is the heart of it. They believe if, if you could learn to do that, that's the center of life. That's what, that's what life is about. That's what our focus should be, loving God with every aspect of our being. He's worthy of that. All right, now, here's what's interesting. The word that we find in here for keep or kept is the Hebrew word shamer. Shamer and shema are very close, etymologically speaking. Okay? They're, they're close in the, in the way that the words and the roots of those words. And I think it's amazing, too, because not only are they close in the way the words relate to each other and their roots, but it also relates to the way that it's presented to us in Scripture. In other words, what I mean is oftentimes you will always see the words here with the words keep. Um, I can think of several times uh, when Jesus teaches and he says, those who hear these words of mine and do what? put them into practice, that's keeping them. In other words, living by them is like a wise man. Or if you don't keep these, if you don't live by these, then you're like a foolish man. 
We talked about building your house on a foundation or building your house on the sand. He says the rains come and the winds blow and the floods come and the water rises and the house on the foundation stands, but the house on the sand, it doesn't. It collapses with a great collapse, right? The, the, the picture there is those who hear the words and hold on to them and keep them are building their house on something that's solid and unchanging. But those who hear but don't keep, that don't hold, that don't put into practice those things, you're building your house on circumstances. And the circumstances are like sand that's always changing. It doesn't even take a storm or a hurricane to move the sand. All it takes is a strong tide. All it takes is a strong wind blowing in one direction, and it can wipe out anything built on the beach just because of the power of the water and the lack of power in sand. And so again, that analogy is to help us to understand when Jesus calls us to follow him, he is the word we are called to keep him, to hold on to him. And that holding on is that picture of obedience that we are called to as well. Do you remember when Jesus is talking to Peter before his denial? And he says, Peter, I've prayed for you. The enemy has asked to sift you like wheat. But, but take courage. I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. Listen to this. He says, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail you. Okay. Now, here's what's interesting. His next words were, so after you've repented... And you've come back, strengthen your brothers. Now, I think that's pretty amazing because when we look at Peter's life, we would say his faith did fail him. But here's the thing. It couldn't have failed him because Jesus said, I already know what you're going to do, but take courage. I've prayed for you and I've prayed that your faith will not fail you and it's not going to fail you. So when you come back, strengthen your brothers. That, my friends, is a very very peaceful understanding of what faith is. Faith is not something that keeps you perfect. Faith is something that keeps you coming back to the only place that you can find real joy and peace. Jesus knew that Peter was going to fail. Peter was the one that said, you know what? I can't fail. If I, if I fail, it's all over. If I fail, God won't have me. If I fail, then I've messed everything up. And Jesus said, you're going to fail. But I pray that your faith won't fail, and it won't. So once you've failed, you're not actually going to fail. You're going to come back, and you're going to be restored. What's that picture? After it's all happened, you know, of course, Peter denies him, follows from a distance, that whole thing. And then after Jesus uh, rises from the dead, and he comes back, and he sees Peter, we see that restoration. He asks him three times, the same amount of times that, that Peter denied him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And what was Peter's response every time? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Bless, yes, Lord. And then what was Jesus' response to him? He's like, well, then say it a little louder. Uh, did they hear you say that? No. What did he say? Then hey, get back in the game. Get back on track. Center yourself around what this is all about. Feed my sheep. Just like I came and fed you, that's what it means. Your faith brings you back to the whole purpose of why I saved you. And that is to continue this legacy. Because this legacy has to keep on going. We have to be a blessing to the nations. We don't have time to sit back and worry about the mistakes we've made. We don't have time to sit back and go, well, what about here? And, and I'm not good enough because this happened. You were never good enough. Get back. Let your faith be solid and take the word to wherever God has given you a place to take it. Feed my sheep. 
just like I came to feed you, you're going to now go and you're going to feed them. And it never had anything to do with you being worthy of it or you were the best person or somehow I thought that it all hinged on you. It never did. I've invited you into this. Do you know what you need to do? You know, what did he say to Peter? Do you what? Love me. Here's another way of saying that. I'm going to take the liberty and change it. Will you keep me? Will you hold fast to me? Will you cling to me? Yeah. If you do that, you're going to make it. Now, again, I'm not saying like, oh, you know, if I don't hold on to Jesus, then I've lost my salvation. I'm going, Aaron, I'm going all this. But the, the point is that the way that we stay on the right path is by holding on to Christ. When we let go and we start going our own way is when that temptation to live on the world standard begins to call us out of that. And we begin to look at the world and go, wow, look at how they live and look at the things they get to live for. And that's the passion in my heart. Yeah, The reason it's a passion in your heart is because you were once of the world. And it's that old man, that dead man that wants to go back to Egypt because there was stake in Egypt. There was also slavery in Egypt. There was also death in Egypt. There was also marginalization in Egypt. It's amazing when we get away from something that we've been rescued from, when we often think about it, all we think about is the good, the pleasurable that we experienced there. We never think about the bad things that were associated with it because of the way our brains are wired for some reason. That's the reason so many people stay in toxic relationships. I mean, it's a horrible relationship. And they know they got to get away from it. Everybody says, you got to get away from that. They get away from that. And they're like, oh, I miss them. I miss them. What? What, what, did you, what do you miss? Because uh, all they remember is like one thing. It's just the way our brains are wired and it's crazy. And that's why Jesus says, you know what? You got to hold on to me because if you put your eyes on the world, you're going to be called back by the sirens of the world singing that beautiful song about how wonderful it is to live in the world, to live for something that's temporary. Oh. Words are often connected with the idea of keeping. It's something that we really need to understand about the world that we live in. Um, we live in a very volatile climate in America. We live with so much polarization. And a lot of it, if, if maybe even all of it, or at least a large majority of it, has everything to do with politics. And one side against the other. And the way that you make your side look better is to demonize the other side and make them look bad. And then the way they make themselves look good is to demonize the other side and they look bad. And then the way you, you do that is you take every situation and you twist it to make your side look good. And then the other guy goes, no, 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 we're going to take that situation and we're going to twist it to make our side look good. And, and what happens in that kind of climate is there's no more truth. You don't know who to believe or what to believe or what really happened. Why? Because no one's interested in truth. They're interested in being right. And in a world like that, you better hold on to the truth that doesn't change or else you will get sucked in and you will find yourself living for a kingdom that's temporary. And listen to me. I don't care what side you're on. Either side. You're going to be living for a kingdom that is temporary. This is eternal, and we can't be swayed by the world. We, we can't lose our focus on what we are called out of the world to be, yet God leaves us here. Jesus says, I want them in the world so that they can be this, not to be divisive, not to be critical, to be a light, to be a source of peace, to be a demonstration of unity. 
that he prays about there at the very beginning. One commentator put it this way. says, the Christian's task then is not to be withdrawn from the world, nor to be confused with the world, but to remain in the world, maintaining witness to the truth by the help of the Holy Spirit and absorbing all the malice that the world can muster, finally protected by the Father himself in response to the prayer of Jesus. And that's a great way of articulating exactly what Jesus is praying there. So again, Jesus prays for their protection, and specifically, he prays for them to be protected from the evil one, doesn't he? Okay. Now, who is the evil one? We call him Satan. Some of you may call him the devil. Some of you may say the enemy. We all have different words, different monikers that we may use for the enemy, the devil, the Satan. Satan is probably the clearest word that's used throughout Scripture over and over again. And so who is Satan? Is he this powerful person who has the power to thwart your life? Does he have this power to come into you and make you do something that you didn't want to do? We think that because when we do something bad, we say, the devil or Satan made me do it. Here's the thing. What you forget to remember is this. Satan's never had any power. He has zero power over you whatsoever. The only power he has is the power that you forfeit to him when you begin to believe his lies. He is the father of lies, the scripture says, and he's the great deceiver. Listen to me. It's the only two weapons he has. That's it. That's all he has. So he is a great manipulator he is a great deceiver, and what he wants to do, and the only thing he has the power to do is to come up to you and whisper in your ear, is it really worth following Jesus? Do you know for sure when you die that he's going to be honest about what heaven is like and what you're going to do there? I mean, it sounds to me like all you're going to do is stand around a throne and sing all the time. I mean, that's going to get old real fast if you're doing that for eternity. I mean, wouldn't you like to live for the... I mean, look at the world around you. Look what your friends are doing. They're having so much fun. They're not suffering consequences. They're having a great time. Here you are reading your Bible, trying to be righteous and pious, trying to do things that you know you can't do. You know you're not good enough for him. You know you'll never reach his standard. You're just going to be disappointed over and over and over again. And you know what? Not only are you going to be disappointed, you're going to disappoint him over and over and over again. Why don't you just be who you are? Celebrate that. Enjoy the time that you have here. Enjoy what you love. Find yourself here. That sounds really good, doesn't it? And what happens is the further and further we take our eyes off the truth that doesn't change, that story sounds more and more sweet to our ears. And we find ourselves abandoning what we knew to be true to embrace what we knew not to be true. Why? Because the deceiver came in. Listen, it's, not, it's, it's no different than what he did in the beginning. Did Satan come down into the garden and slap them around and say, you are not going to follow him, put their arms behind their back and say, deny God right now or I'm not going to let you go? No, he just came in and said, did God really say that you can't eat of any of these trees in the garden that he planted? How selfish of him. No, 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 no. God didn't say that. He said... He said we can't eat of that tree. Um, oh, that tree. Oh, yeah. You know why he doesn't want you to eat of that tree? Because what would happen is if you eat the fruit of that tree, then you will know the things that he knows. And if you know the things that he knows, then you don't need him anymore. 
I mean, the whole point of him not having you eat from that tree is because he needs people to need him. And if you know the things he knows, you don't need him anymore. You'll be like him. You'll be a God yourself, knowing all the things that he knows. All of a sudden, that sounded like, you know what? I can't trust God. He's not loving. These restrictions he's placed on me is for his benefit, not for mine. And all of a sudden, we buy the lie and we eat of the fruit. It's the same story that keeps happening over and over again. Like we said, the Israelites, they get into the wilderness. Boy, I wish I could go back to Egypt. They had good food there. I mean, think about it. Over and over again, the judges come in, and everybody gets corrupt, and all of a sudden they go into exile. If we go back to the promised land, we will never do that again. It's just the same repetition. Why? Because we keep following for the same stories and the same lies. I always tell married couples whenever they're going through difficult times. And I, I use this saying, I said that when you two are not speaking to each other, the enemy is speaking to both of you. And what I mean by that is what happens is we start not communicating and the enemy comes up to him and says, you know she doesn't really respect you, right? She never will. She never appreciates what you do. I mean, you go and you work so hard and you bust your butt and all she notices is the things you do wrong. You know, she doesn't respect you. She's never going to honor you. Hey, but that lady at work, now that's one that she really pays attention to you. You ever notice how she always compliments you on, on how good you are and how smart you are and how good looking you are? And boy, your, your wife must be, must be really blessed to have a man like you. Now that's the kind of woman that you need. And then he says to her, you know he doesn't love you, right? I mean, if he loved you, he would show it more. You would hear it more. He wouldn't be gone all the time. You know what? I bet he's talking to somebody else. I bet he's looking at somebody else. You know what? You just need to give up on him. You need to find somebody who's your person. He's not your person. And what happens is because we're not talking to each other, the enemy talks to both of us, and we buy the lies. It's the same thing he does to us spiritually. When we take our eyes off of the word and we're not communicating with God, we begin to listen to those lies and they sound so good. It's the same lies that he spoke to Jesus, though. But how did Jesus answer every one of them? Get away from me, Satan, for it is written. His relationship with God, his communication with God was how, how he knew the lie and the deception for what it was. And guess what? As we move forward with the mission that we've been given, that Jesus was praying for, as we go into the world, into the darkness, there's going to be a great temptation to capitulate to that darkness. And the only way that you won't is to keep the word. Now, keep the word, again, remember John, keep the word isn't just reading this every day and memorizing this every day. Keeping this is memorizing and reading this in connection of a relationship with what this is, which is Jesus. It is the connection that we have with the Father because of what he restored for us at the cross. It's in that relationship that we walk with and we commune and we talk with him that all of a sudden when the devil whispers a, a lie or a deception into our ear, we go back and go, Father, is that true? And the Father, you'll hear him say, it is written. And he'll remind you of something that's in the word about how faithful he is and how whatever that lie is is not true, that he's trying to trick you, he's painting a picture that's not real. And he brings you back and he says, listen, I never change. I always remain the same. You know where you stand with me. 
I'm not going to deceive you. I'm not going to trick you. That's good. Because when we have that relationship, that's a relationship where we know that we're solid and secure. Oh, John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, I want you to notice the connection we have between verse 16 and verse 17. Look back at verse 16 for a second. What does it say? Um, It talks about the idea of not not allowing them to be taken out of the world. Um, In other words, I, I don't want you to take them out of the world. And then in verse 17, it says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. So there's this idea of don't take them out of, but sanctify them in. So there's this picture of being in the midst of the chaos where we are somehow protected in the midst of it. Again, I told you there's Passover language here. Remember that in the Passover, all the plagues were happening around Israel, but Israel was sustained from that. They were protected. In the first few, it seems like they had some impacts from it, and then the further you get along, they were completely protected from what was happening to the point that at the end, the last one, the death of the firstborn, if they had the Passover lamb blood on the doorpost, the, the, the death angel pa- passed over their house. That's a beautiful picture there of what that means, to be protected in, to be sanctified in. So keep them, Jesus says, unify them, sanctify them. This is what Jesus is asking for his disciples. This is exactly what Paul prays for the church in several of his pastoral letters, to sanctify them in the midst of their difficulty, to sustain them in the midst of their situations and their persecution. So oftentimes we think our happiness is going to be found If we just have a different set of circumstances, Lord, I'd be happy if you just make my wife better, make my husband better, I'd be happier. You change the circumstances, I'll be happier. You change circumstances in my bank account, I'll be happier. Change circumstances in my job, I'll be happier. My education, I'll be happier. My friends, I'll be happier. My location, whatever it is, we really think that our happiness is contingent on our circumstances. And so that's what we continually ask God for. God, change my circumstances. Instead, we should pray as Jesus did. Glorify yourself even in the midst of my present circumstances. In other words, reveal yourself in the darkness. Reveal yourself in the temptation to doubt. Reveal yourself in the difficulty that I walk through. Reveal yourself in the disappointment. Reveal yourself in the hurt. Reveal yourself in the sickness. Reveal yourself in the disillusionment. Show who you are in the midst of this tragedy that I'm walking through. I've often said that Paul, when he talks about these He calls it light and momentary afflictions that we walk through, that they pale in comparison to the weight of the glory that God has in store for us. And I've often said this. I said that is either the greatest truth that Paul has ever spoken or it's the cruelest thing that a person could ever say. Because what he's saying is, and you name your difficulty that you've walked through, the loss of a loved one, a sickness that just you can't get over, um, the disappointment, the disillusion, losing your family, whatever it may be. And Paul says, oh, that's light. It's nothing. That's either the cruelest thing that you could say to a person 
or it's the greatest truth that you could share with them that somehow glory eclipses what you're going through. So take your eyes off the circumstances and put it on the glory. And what is glory? The revelation of who God is, that he loves you in the midst of it, that he will save you in the midst of it, that he has a plan that will call you out of that and restore you in a relationship with God, in the family of God, in the presence of God for eternity, in a place that you cannot even imagine, that the only way we can explain it is um, streets of gold, pearls, um, the gates are made out of pearls, glassy seas. I mean, that's, that's the idea. That, that, you get the picture, right? Because it's way bigger and better than that. That's just the only thing we can relate to is very expensive stuff. And so they want you to know the very expensive stuff that you have here, that's building materials there, all right? So that, that'll get you started. But there's no way that I can explain heaven to you because you wouldn't understand it. You have no concept. You have no way of really even beginning to envision what it really is. So that'll do you until we get there. That's, that's powerful. This is something good to talk about with your family. What is the difference between joy and happiness? Well, you could talk all day about that. But the cool thing about that question is small children could talk about that, and adults can talk about that. What's the difference of joy and happiness? Joy is something that's more substantial. Happiness is circumstantial. What does that mean? What does that look like in the way that we live it out? And what really keeps us from getting to that joy? And I would argue that it's fear that keeps us from that joy. Because the one thing fear does is fear separates us. Fear separates us over and over again. I would even say in the climate that we find ourselves in, it is fear that causes the division that we experience. There are, with the whole virus thing, there are those that think the government's out to get us. And there are those that think the virus is out to get us. Okay? Both of them live in fear. And they separate and they're divided because of their fear. They're just fearful of two different things. And what we're called to do is to walk in the middle without any fear. Okay? Navigating both of the waters. We don't live an extreme over here, and we don't live an extreme over here. We understand what we're up against and what we're dealing with, but we don't walk in fear. Think about that. Whenever unity comes into the picture... It dispels fear because unity is based around a common goal that we all accept. And if we accept that common goal, then it's the gospel. And it's the gospel going forth, and it's light in the darkness. So whatever it takes for us to continue to be light in darkness, that's what we pursue. We become unified around that. So when we submit our fears to God, what happens is he brings unity, and the unity is the thing that begins to bond us, not the fear that separates us. If you take verse 17, you do a simple find and replace. This is what you get. Sanctify them in truth. What is truth? Your word is truth. So when you do the find and replace, this is what you get. Sanctify them in your word. Who's the word? Jesus. You're sanctified in Jesus. You're sanctified in your relationship with Jesus. You're sanctified as you study these words about the word because you learn to know his character and his pleasure and his goal and the things that he loves and the things he's done for you and the desires that he has for you and the plans that he has for you. And all of that is revealed in our relationship with him and what he's revealed about himself in these pages. Your word is truth. So sanctify us in that word. This also is the idea, 
of glory that permeates this chapter as well. And again, we talked about glory is about revelation. When we talk about glory, it's not accolades. It's understanding that God is revealing his character to us through our circumstances. God is revealing his character to us through his word, through our study, through our involvement in church, through our relationships, all these different ways. God shows us who he is, revealing himself in scripture and in situations in life. The whole point of God's revealed truth, both through Scripture and through the person of Jesus, revealed to us in Scripture is that we would learn to think the way God thinks. That's the goal, is to think the way God thinks, not to think the way we think. Because if we always stay where we think, we're always questioning God. God, why this? Why that? Why did you do this? Why haven't you given me this? Why wouldn't you do this for me? Why wouldn't you do that for me? Because we're trying to figure out, why does God not think the way I do? Instead, what we should be doing is, why am I not thinking the way God does? Because he's way smarter. Why don't I get on his agenda? Why don't I see things from his perspective? And so our prayers begin to change, not God, why this, why that? God, help me this, help me that. Help me see this the way you do. Help me to understand the value of this from your perspective. Help me to make a decision that is glorifying you, that, that furthers the cause, that extends the gospel kingdom. So the process that we are walking through is called the process of sanctification. It's this process of learning to value things the way God values them. The process of sanctification is learning to live God's way. So the antithesis of this sanctification is what we call worldliness. And worldliness is learning to live the world's way. You are all, and me included, are learning to live life every day. Did you know that? Did You don't know how to live life yet, that you're learning every single day? And you are following one of two mentors, Jesus or the world. And you're learning every day how to live from somebody. And you better find out who it is because that somebody's leading you somewhere. Notice that Jesus never says, just do this because I told you to. But he always has the end goal. The goal of this is that you're going to hand this baton off to someone else. And then that person is going to hand this baton off to someone else. And then in the end, we're all going to gather around a throne and we're going to celebrate the fact that God was faithful to everything that he promised, that he was loving towards all that he had made. And we are going to find ourselves on the side of the family of God and we celebrate these things forever. He, he gives us, he tells us where it's going. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Again, we see these themes. Jesus is modeling for us. Our suffering has purpose, not out of, but sent into. As one commentator put it, he put it this way, Jesus dedicates himself to the task of bringing in God's saving reign as God's priest, his mediator, the prophet, the revealer. But the purpose of this dedication is that his followers may dedicate themselves to the same saving reign, the same mission to the world. So again, if you see the language here in Jesus' prayer, you see him saying, hey, just as I have done these things and lived for these things, so now I want you to do these things and live for these things. Jesus is saying, just as I watched the Father and I did what I saw the Father doing and I told you what the Father was saying, so I want you to go into the world and I want you to do what you saw me doing and I want you to say what you heard me saying. And we keep carrying this on. Paul says, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. So again, that becomes the pattern for us from that day forward. The sanctified truth. Again, I told you there were Passover overtones to this. I don't want to end without highlighting that. You remember, uh, the Israelites were called out of Egypt, right? And they were brought into the wilderness. And they wandered there for 40 years. And that's where they were consecrated. That's where they were getting all the Egypt off of them. 
and they were getting all the, the getting ready for the faithfulness that it was going to take to take the land, right? And so then he, they go into the land. Now, here's the thing. When they went to the promised land, he said, I'm giving you this land. I'm taking you in there. Where did he take them to? He took them to a land, listen to me, that was full of Gentiles, all their enemies. That's who was there. He said, I'm taking you after I've rescued you and after I've sanctified you, then I'm sending you into the midst of your enemies. And that's where your land's going to be. And guess what? It's still there. <laughs> now think about that for a moment because it's almost a picture of Passover, exactly Jesus' prayer here. What does he say? Listen to his prayer. These are the themes of Jesus' prayer. Protect them, unite them, guard them, sustain them, fill them, sanctify them, and send them. Listen, protect them. God said, I've heard the cry of my people in Egypt, and I'm coming to meet their need. Unite them. Moses, go and call the assemblies together and tell them the things that I'm going to share with them. I'm calling them to be a holy people, a separate people. Guard them. As they were leaving Egypt, it says that God went before them, and he also followed behind them. Sustain them as they got into the wilderness that had no provisions. God gave them sweet water where there was only bitter. And he fed them water from a rock or gave them water to drink from a rock. He filled them with bread, the manna from heaven. He filled them with his word from Mount Sinai. That's also where he sanctified them. He said, here's our relationship. I'm calling you out of the world to a special relationship with me. I'm sanctifying you. I'm calling you out. And then what are you going to do? I'm going to send you into the promised land. Is it just because y'all are great people and I want to give y'all some good land? No. So that you may be a blessing to the nations. It's the same exact thing that Jesus prays for us. Because you know why Jesus has to pray this? Because our temptation is monasticism. You know what monasticism is, right? It's like, you ever been to a monastery? where you separate from the world and you don't talk and you don't look at those things and nothing of the world, you don't let any of that stuff in there. You just separate and just get away from the world because the world will taint you, the world is evil, the world is bad, so just get away from the world so that you can be holy and sanctified. But yet that goes against everything that Jesus prays in his prayer here. I also want to just give you an illustration quickly, and that is that when we see the prayer or the uh, letters that were delivered to the seven churches in the beginning of Revelation. One of those churches was the church in Ephesus. If you remember, this was one of Paul's favorite churches. It was probably the church where Mary, the mother of Jesus, stayed until she died, stayed in their care. This is one of the pioneer churches of the early church. Yet when it comes to Revelation, he says something very specifically to that group Jesus does through an angel. And here's the message. I know all the good things that you do. I know you have a high standard, and I know you've lived to that high standard. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Repent. Go back and do the things you did at first, or I will come and remove my lampstand from you. Now, again, I've heard that preached a whole bunch of different ways, one of them namely being the lampstand is your salvation, and so if you don't go and do what you need to do at first. And, but here's the thing. He said they were already doing a lot of good things. So what were they doing at first that they weren't doing now? Well, that's where the historical aspect of it comes in. What we know about the church in Ephesus is they were probably one of the most persecuted churches. They were not allowed to buy and sell in the market at all. They weren't even allowed to drink from the public fountains. They had to walk seven miles to get their water for their daily uses. 
You know what? They finally had had enough of all the persecution, all the marginalization. They decided to just move out of the city, and they started their own commune outside in the city. They built their own wells. They started making their own stuff, growing their own food, and just taking care of each other. And Jesus comes into that situation and says, I I know you've come out here because you think you're doing a good thing, but I need you in there. What good is a lampstand around a whole bunch of other lampstands? I need you in the darkness. I I need you to go back into the persecution. I I need you to go back and be marginalized. Because that's where the gospel is going to go forth. But but those circumstances, don't think about the circumstances. Think about what we are called to do, what we are living for. It's something greater and bigger than just being happy and content here. Go back and do the things you did at first. Remember when you were so excited about the gospel that you would go and charge hell with a water pistol. That's, what, that's the energy that you had, and now all of a sudden you've just backed off and you're content with just being good. I don't want you to be good. I want you to be transformational. And the darkness needs a light. When you were in the darkness, I came to you. And I need you to do what I did for you. I need you to take me to them. Go back and do the things you did at first. You know, when we begin to live this out, being in that darkness and being in that light may look like you know, being a part of a PTA or playing a sport that you love to play, but trying to find an unbelieving friend or neighbor or coworker to come with you so you have that opportunity to share the gospel. Maybe it's being a room mother at your child's school. Maybe it's just taking an active interest in the places that you go every day, whether it's a supermarket or it's a restaurant, and finding that one waiter, that waitress that you can ask for every time. You just build a relationship and just say, you know what? Hey, how have you been? What's been going on in your life? That's the way you're a light and a darkness in a very simple way. Jesus said in verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you have sent me. Here's the balance that Jesus gives to us. How well do we relate to other believers? That was the first part of his prayer in that second section. Unity and protection, right? So the first thing is, how well do we relate to other believers? Are we always divisive and dividing and always complaining about each other? Or do we live with a common purpose? And then the next question is, how well do we relate to the world? Are we building relationships with those that are lost? And are we still trying to take the light into a dark place? Are we relating to the world through isolation, trying to remove ourselves from them? Are we relating to the world through assimilation, becoming more and more like them? Or are we relating to the world through mission, which is, I'm not them, but I have been sent to them so that they may know what redeemed me. Let's pray together. God. What a prayer. And um, sadly, so many times in life, we keep falling to the same deception, the same lies. And I pray that in this moment that you would reveal to us the truth, that we would be able to embrace it despite our circumstances. Help us to see things, Holy Spirit, that we've never seen before and help us to listen to you. And, And Lord, let that truth dispel the lies and deception that we've fallen for for so long. Help us to come back to reality. Help us to come back and do the things we did at first. Help us to embrace our first love. And may that be the motivation of everything that we do. 
God, as we sing these songs, may we be reminded of these truths. May they be not words we read or sing off of a screen, but may they become the meditations of our minds and the cry of our heart. Lord, may our will bend to yours so that we may know your truth. We ask this in the name that's above every name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.